Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Andrea Norton's The Stars Are Ours. Volume 6, Chapter 2, New World. Rogan! The televisor expert had spun his seat around and was facing another section of the control panel, his fingers flying across the buttons there. Needles spun on dials, indicators moved, and Rogan's lips shaped words silently. When he was done, Kimber flicked the control of the visa screen, which had gone dead at their landing. Slowly, pictures of the immediate surroundings of the ship unrolled before their fascinated eyes. Late afternoon, by the length of the shadows, Rogan commented. The ship had planted in the middle of an expanse of gray-blue gravel or sand, backed at a distance by perpendicular cliffs of reddish rock, layered by strata of blue, yellow, and white. As the scene changed, those in the control room saw the cliffs give way to the mouth of a long valley, down the center of which curved a stream. That water's red! Dard's surprise jolted the words out of him. The Red River was hemmed in by low blue-green vegetation that cloaked the ground within the valley itself and ran in tongues along the water into the semi-arid stretch of sand. Their viewing device was across the river, picking up more cliffs and sand. Then they were fronted by ocean shore and vivid aquamarine waves tipped with white lacy foam. Into this emptied the river, staining the sea red for some distance. Sea, air cliffs, river, but no moving creatures. Wait. Kimber's order sent Rogan's finger down on a button and the picture on the screen became fixed. I thought I saw something flying in the air. I guess I was wrong. The scene changed until they were looking at the same spot where it had begun. Kimber stretched. This part of the country appears unoccupied. And Tass, we didn't sight any signs of civilization we came in either. Maybe our luck's held, and we have an empty world. Maybe, but is it one we can venture into? The first scientist squeezed over to Kali's side of the cabin. Atmosphere, temperature, within a fraction of terrace. Yes, we can live and breathe here. Kimber freed himself from the pilot's straps. Suppose we have a look-see in person, then. Dart was the last to leave the cabin. He was still a little drunk, with that ride of color on the visa screen. After the remembered drabness of his home section of Terra, this was overpowering. He was halfway down the ladder when he heard that clang which announced the opening of the hatch and the emergence of the ramp that would carry them safely over ground superheated by their jets. When he came out, the others were strung along the ramp, breathing the warm air, air that was pungent with a fresh tang. The breeze pulled at Dart's hair, whipping a lock across his forehead, singing in his ears. Clean air, with none of the chemical taint that clung to the ship. Around the fins of the ship, the sand had been fused into a curdled milky glass, which they avoided by leaping from the end of the ramp to the dunes. Kimber and Kordoff plowed straight ahead to the wave-smooth shore. Cully merely dropped into the soft grit of the beach, lying full length, his hands pressed tightly to the earth, staring bemusedly up at the sky, while Rogan was pivoting slowly as if to verify the scene that the visa screens had shown them. Dard made his way to the sand. The redness of the river occupied him. Red. Why? Why red? 
The sea was normal enough, except where it was exposed to the color of the river. He wanted to know what painted the stream, and he started off determinedly to its bank. The sand was softer, more powdery than any he had known on Terra. It sifted into his boot packs, rose in puffs, covered all but the faintest outline where he had stepped. He stooped and shifted the stuff through his fingers, knowing a strange tingle as the earth of this new world drifted away from his palm. Blue sand, red river, red, yellow, and white striped cliffs. There was color everywhere. Overhead, that arch of cloud studded blue, or was it blue at all? Didn't it have just the faintest shading of green? Turquoise rather than true blue. He could distinguish more subtle shades among the glows of brighter tones, shades he couldn't name, like that pale violet which streaked the sand. Dard went on until he was in the stone and pebble-strewn border of the river. It was not a large stream. Four strides would take him across it. There was a ripple of current, but the water was opaque, a dull, rusty red, and it left a reddish rim around every stone it lipped in its passage. He went down on one knee and was about to dip a cautious exploratory finger in when a voice called a warning. Don't you try that, kid. It is probably not healthy. Rogan came down the stony bank to join him. Better safe than sorry. I learned that myself on Venus, the hard way. Do you see a piece of driftwood anywhere around here? Dart searched among the rocks and found what appeared to be an ordinary stick. But Rogan inspected it carefully before he picked it up. The stick was lowered into the flood and then cautiously withdrawn, and now an inch or so of it was dyed red. Together they held it for closer examination. It's alive! If he'd been holding that test branch, Dart thought later, he might have dropped it at the realization of what the red stain was. But Rogan kept a tight grip. Little beggars, aren't they? They look like spiders. Do they float or swim? And why are they so thick in the water? Now let's just see. He knelt, and using the stick along the surface of the water, skimmed off a good portion of what Dard secretly considered the extremely repulsive travelers. With a layer of spiders removed, the water changed color and became a clear brownish fluid. Ah, so they can be scraped off. With a strainer, we might be able to get a drink. If this stuff is drinkable. Dard swallowed hastily as Rogan tapped off a convenient boulder, the greater number of creatures he had fished out of the stream, and then together they followed the water to the sea. Several times they detoured, quite widely on Dart's part, to escape contact with patches of red marooned on shore. Not that the spiders appeared uncomfortable on the firmer element, for they made no attempt to move away from the spots where some sudden eddy had deposited them. A stiff breeze came in over the waves. It was heavy with that tang that Rogan now identified for Dard. It is a natural sea. That is salt air. What he might have added was drowned out by a hideous screech. Close on its dying echo came a very human shout. Kimber and Kordoff were running along the beach, just beyond the water's edge. And above their heads twisted and darted a nightmare. A small nightmare to be sure, but one horrible enough to have winged out of an evil dream. If a Terran snake had been equipped with bat wings, two clawed legs, a barbed tail, and a wide-fanged mouth, it might have approached this general horror. The whole thing could not have been more than 18 or 20 inches long, 
but its snapping fury was several times larger than its body, and it was making power dives at the running men. Dar dropped his spider stick as Dar's hand flew inside his blouse to claim the only possession he had brought from Terra. He threw the hunting knife and by some incredible luck clipped a wing, not only breaking the dragon's dive but sending it fluttering down end over end screeching. It flapped and beat with a good wing, squirming across the sand until Kimber and Kordoff pinned it to the shingle with hasty flung stones. Its eyes gleamed with red hate as they gathered in a circle around it, avoiding the snapping jaws and the flipping of the barbed tail which now dripped oily yellow drops. I would bet that that's poison, suggested Rogan. Nice critter. I hope they don't grow any bigger. What's the matter? Cully came tearing down the slope, one of the green ray guns in his hand. What's making all that racket? Rogan moved aside to display the injured dragon. It was a native telling us off. Usually, Kimber broke in, I don't believe in shooting first and investigating afterwards, but this thing certainly hasn't any better nature to appeal to. Nearly stripped the ear off my head before I knew he was around. Can you shoot it, George, without messing it up too much? Tassio probably will want to take it apart later to see what makes it tick. The biologist was squatting a safe distance, watching the convulsive struggles of the dragon with fascinated eyes. Yes, please do not destroy it utterly. A snake, a flying snake. But that is not possible. Maybe not on Terra, Kimber reminded him. What can we say is possible or impossible here? George, put it out of its misery. The green ray clipped the top of the creature's head and it went limp in the sand. Tass approached it gingerly, keeping as far as he could from the tail barb, still exuding that yellow venom. Rogan went back down the beach to retrieve his spider collection and Dard picked up and wiped his knife clean. Flying snakes and swimming spiders. The communications technician held out his stick for their appraisal. I'm going to be afraid to sit down out here. Anything may pop up now. Tass was plainly torn between the now tractable dragon and the water dwellers Rogan had brought him. All this, his pudgy fingers indicated the world of cliffs and sea, is new and unclassified. Cully holstered his gun. He was frowning at the ceaseless waves. What do you make of those, Sam? He demanded of the pilot, pointing to a low bank of clouds, slowly expanding up the rim of the sky. On Earth, I'd say it was a storm. It might be a bad one, too, Rogan commented. And we have no shelter but the ship. At least this is summer. We are warm enough. You think so? asked Dard with some reason. The sea wind was rising to become a wet lash with an icy bite on his flail. The temperature was dropping fast. Kimber studied the clouds. I'd say we better get back in. But when he turned inland, his gasp brought them all around. They had left the starship on an even keel. Now it listed so that his nose pointed down the valley away from the sea. A good half hour later, Kimber got to his feet. Relief mirrored on his face. One of the fins had broken through the fused coating the jet heat had put on the beach, but beneath the splintered glass crust, it had found rock support. It would slip no further. The scarred sides towering above them were no longer mere bright as they had been in the cleft. She had too many years, too long a voyage behind her, but she was not going to fail them now. Rock all right, Kimber repeated the statement he had made so joyfully a few minutes before. 
The ledge slants a little here, which is why she canted that way, but she'll stand. And he didn't need to draw their attention to the darkness closing in. Maybe it's some more luck to work out again. With her nose pointing away from this breeze, it's less likely she's going to fall over, even if it turns out to be a full-sized blow. Dard held onto the rail of the ramp. The wind screamed around them, stirring up devils born of the powdery sand, which filled unwary eyes and any mouth that had the misfortune to open. The dust had already driven Kordoff inside, his precious dragon in a pair of forceps. He was more interested in that and Rogan spiders than he was now about the ship. Full-sized blow! said Rogan. This has the makings of a hurricane, if I'm any judge. And unless you fellas want to be buried alive in these marching sand dunes, you'd better run for cover. As long as you're sure we're not going to land bottom side up, I think it's time to adjourn. Dard fouled him up the ramp, just in time to escape a miniature sandstorm through which the other two had to fight their way. There was a brushing-off party in the airlock, but as they climbed back to the crew's quarters, Dard could still taste grit in his mouth and hear it crunch under his feet. Kordoff was not to be found in the control cabin or bunk room when Kimber and the others sat on the bunks, and Dard dropped down cross-legged onto the floor. The ship was vibrating under him. Could the wind have risen to that pitch already? It was Rogan who answered that. Would you like to see what's happening out there? He got up and went into the control cabin. Kimber and Dard got up to follow, but... Cully shook his head. Well, you don't know doesn't hurt you much, he remarked, and I don't see anything exciting about a sandstorm. It was true. When Rogan adjusted the visa screen, there was little to see. The storm had brought night and obscurity. With an exclamation of annoyance, the technician clicked off the viewer, and they drifted back to find Cully asleep, and Kordoff climbing up to join them. Your spiders, he burst out as soon as he sighted Rogan. They are plants. But they moved, protested Dard. They had legs. Kordoff shook his head. Roots, not legs, and plants they are, in spite of being mobile. It is some form of aquatic fungi. Toadstools with legs, Rogan laughed. Next trees with arms, I suppose. What about the dragon? Was he a flying cabbage? Kordoff did not need any urging to discuss the dragon. Poisonous reptile and carnivorous. We shall have to beware of them. But it was full grown. We need not worry. About them coming in larger sizes? Asked the relaxed Kimber in a lazy voice. Let's be thankful for small favors and hope they do a lot of screeching when they go a-hunting. But now, let's think about tomorrow. And tomorrow and tomorrow, Rogan repeated sleepily. But Kali sat up thoroughly aroused. When do we wake up the others? He wanted to know. Are we going to stay right here? Kordoff locked his fingers behind his head and leaned back against the wall of the cabin. I will revive Dr. Scort, Carly, in the morning. She can help me with the others. Do you intend to explore the immediate terrain then? We should decide soon whether to stay here or try to find semi-permanent headquarters elsewhere. There is just one thing. I can lift the ship again, yeah, but I can't guarantee another safe landing. The fuel. I don't know how long our voyage here has lasted. If we hadn't made this landfall when we did, we might not have been able to come down at all. So, Kordoff's lips shaped a soundless whistle. Then we had better be very sure before we think of a move. What about taking out the sled? I'll break it out first thing tomorrow, that is, 
I will if the storm blows itself out by then. I don't propose to take that contraption up in a high wind. The bugs aren't out of it yet, Kimber retorted. What about food? Cully asked. Specifically here and now for us, and objectively for the rest when they wake up. Specifically, Kordoff opened one of the storage cabinets and took out five small packets, which she tossed around to the company. Concentrates. But you're right. Supplies are not going to last forever. We shall not be able to awaken all our company until we are reasonably sure of food and shelter. But we'll get Hyman out of storage and have him investigate the soil upriver, where the vegetation is so thick. The exploration party might also hunt. Not dragons, I hope. Rogan mumbled through a mouthful of the dry concentrate cake. I have a distinct feeling dragons will not agree with my internal arrangements. Or that traveling fungi either. For the first time, Dard ventured to break in upon his elders. Some fungi, mushrooms, are good to eat. He had no desire to lunch off the red spiders, but he knew what real hunger meant, and if it was a question of being hungry or eating swimming mushrooms, he would close his eyes and eat. Just so, Kordoff beamed at him, and we shall investigate the food value of these. I shall get the hamsters out of cold storage and try the local products on them. So if they don't curl up and go blue in the face, we feast? Kimber stretched and yawned. Since we have quite a full day before us tomorrow, suppose we hit the sack now, toss for the bunks and the acceleration baths. They solemnly tossed a coin, one with a hole in it, which Kimber wore in a chain around his neck as a lucky piece. Dard found that fortune relegated him to one of the acceleration paths, but he didn't care. To his mind, the soft sponge of that support was infinitely more comfortable than any bed he could remember. But when he curled up on it, he found he couldn't sleep. All the wonders of this new world whirled through his mind in a mad dance, and behind them lurked fear. Louis Scort had been a young man, strong, but he had not survived the passage. How many more of the boxes housed below in the starship held death instead of life? And what about Desi? Now that there was nothing to distract him, nothing he could give attention to, he remembered only her, the tight yellow braids sticking out at sharp angles, how she had been able to sit so quietly in the grass that birds and little animals accepted her as part of their world and had been entirely unafraid. How good and patient she had always been. Desi. He sat up, to lie there and sleep when Desi might never wake to see this new land. He just couldn't. On hands and knees, Dard crawled out of the control cabin and between the bunks. Kimber was curled in a ball on one, but the other, which had fallen to Kordoff, was empty. Dard started down the stairs. The deck below showed a patch of strong light, and he could hear somebody moving. He ventured to the door of the laboratory where he had helped revive Cully and Rogan. The first scientist was busy there, setting out instruments and bottles. He looked up as Dard's shadow fell into the room. What is it? Desi, the boy blurted out. I've got to know about Desi. Ah, so I see. But it is for their comfort and protection that our companions must continue to sleep until we are sure of food and shelter. I know that. But the desperation in Dard could not be sensibly silenced. But isn't there any way at all of telling if she's okay? I'll have to know about her. I'll just have to. Task Kordoff pulled out his lower lip with thumb and forefinger 
and allowed it to snap back into place with a small smacking sound. That is a thought, my boy. We can tell whether the mechanism has in any way failed, and perhaps, just perhaps, we can have other assurances. I must open that particular compartment in the morning anyway to bring out Garley's skort. His face puckered with misery of an unhappy child. And then I must be the one to tell her about Louis. That will be a very hard thing to do. Well, we do not escape the hard things in life, do we? Come along. They went down the five levels in the ship. Here the few lights were very dim, and the force of the wind against the hull could be more strongly felt. Kordoff verified markings on the sealed door, and at last released the fastenings of a portal, which came open with a faint sigh of displaced air. The chill of the room fed Dard's unease. He edged along after Kordoff, between doubled racks of coffin boxes to the final set. The first scientist dropped to his knees and snapped on a hand torch to read dials. Desi and Lara Skort are in this one together. They were so small they could share a compartment. The light in Kordoff's hand flashed from one dial to the next and the next, and he smiled up at Dard. These are all as they should be, son. There has been no organic or chemical change inside since this was sealed. To my honest belief, they are alive and well. Soon they will be out to run about as little girls should. They will be free, as they have never been on Terra. Do not worry. Your Desi shall share this world with you. Dard had himself under control now, and he was able to answer very levelly. Thank you, thank you, thank you a lot, sir. The Kordoff had moved to another box and was reading more dials. He gave that case a slap of approbation as he straightened to his full height again. Carly, too. We have been very lucky, huh? Chapter 3 Storm Rack Good Lord! The tone, rather than the words of that horrified exclamation, awoke Dard and brought him up on the acceleration pad. Kimber, Rogan, and Cully were crowded together before the visiscreen. The hour might have been in the middle of the night or late in the morning, for inside the ship day and night had no division, but on the screen it was day. A gray sky was patched by ragged drifts of cloud, and as Dard leaned over the back of the pilot's chair, he saw what had so startled the others. Where the day before had stretched that smooth sweep of blue sand, forming a carpet clear to the base of the colorful cliffs, there was now only water, a sheet of it. Rogan set the viewer to turning so that he could see the flood completely surrounded the ship. Even the river had been swallowed up without any red stain left to betray its flow. As the scene reached the seaside, Rogan pushed the button which held it there. The beach was gone. It was the sea which had come to enclose them. Surprise, surprise! That was Rogan. Do we swim now ashore? I don't think it's that deep, answered Kimber. The water may come in this way, only after a hard storm. Switch over to the cliffs again, Les. The picture whizzed with a dizzying speed back to the cliff. Kimber was right. Already there was a stretch of sand showing at the base of that rock escarpment. The water was draining away. They clambered down through the quiet ship, sending out the ramp so that they could venture to the water's swirl. A weak current swilled around the fins, 
and the bare sand at the cliff grew wider as they watched. The flood was not clear, and caught around the fins of the ship were huge loops of weed. Some variety of fish had been beached close to the foot of the ramp, and a scaled tail beat waves as the stranded monster fought for life. Other debris showed tantalizingly now and again as the water was suddenly sucked away from the sand. What the? Cully's start was near to a jump. Over, over there to the right. What is that? Something was venturing out on the still wet sand, following the retreating line of the sea. But what was it? None of them dared guess. Kimber ran back into the ship while the rest tried vainly to see it better. The color was strange, queer, a pale green, hardly to be distinguished from the seawater as it scurried along on four thin legs. Here, Kimber skidded down the ramp, keeping himself out of the sea by a quick grab for the rail. He carried a pair of field glasses. Is it still there? Yeah, I see it. He focused the lenses in the right direction. Great guns. What is it? demanded Rogan, plainly doing his best to keep from snatching the glasses away from the pilot. Yeah. Kelly, too, was shaken out of his usual calm. Pass those along, fella. We all want to take a look. Dard squinted, trying to make natural sight serve as well as the lenses Kimber had now passed to Rogan. At least the thing on the sand did not appear to be alarmed, either by the ship or the men watching it. Maybe it would stay in sight until he, as the very junior member of the party, had the right to use the lenses too. It stayed, digging in the wet sand, until Cully did pass the glasses. Dart adjusted them feverishly. Having met the fungi spider and a flying dragon, he could hardly be surprised by the weird beast he now saw. Its pale green skin was entirely hairless, but that skin was not scaled. Instead, it resembled to a marked degree his own smooth flesh. The creature's head was pear-shaped with ears which were hardly more than holes, and large eyes set far apart so that the range of vision was probably wider than that of any Terran animal. But that pear head ended in what could only be described as a broad duck's bill of hard, blackish substance. And just as Dard trained the glasses upon it, it folded its hind legs neatly under it to sit in a dog-like stance and gazed mildly across the dwindling tongue of sea straight at the starship. Sand clung to its bill, and it absent-mindedly brushed that off with a foreleg. It's a duck dog, Kimber named it. Doesn't look dangerous, does it? I'll be... Well, just look at that. That was a short procession of more duck dogs emerging from a dark crevice in the cliff to join the first. One of them, about three-quarters the size of the first, was the same pale green, but the three others were yellow, the exact yellow, Dard noted, of the strata of the cliff. In fact, as they marched by a projection of that particular stratum, they faded from sight. Two of the yellow beasts were full-grown, but the third was very small, and halfway along the path it sat down, refusing to move on, until one of the larger animals returned to butter to head. Family party, suggested Dard not daring to hold the glasses away from Kimber's impatient reach any longer. But harmless, the pilot suggested for a second time. You suppose they'd let us near them? The water's gone down a lot. Nothing like trying. Just let George be ready with that ray gun. Then if they do turn out to be first-class menaces, we'll all be prepared. The communications technician lowered himself cautiously into the flood, which was at knee level. He detoured 
to avoid the floating weed and paused when he reached the fish still beating the air with a frenzied tail. Dard caught up with him at that point. Save for a curiously flattened head with a huge paunchy middle, the stranded fish was the first living thing they had seen here that did resemble a Terran product. It was a good five feet long and displayed murderous teeth. The powerful tail beat the receding water into froth, but it was beyond the hope of escape. Dard spoke impulsively. Can't you shoot it? It won't be able to get away, and I think it knows that. Yeah. That was Cully, as usually wasted no words. He snapped the ray at the writhing head. With a last convulsion, the fish flopped completely out of the water to float with its huge belly up when it fell back. Maybe breakfast? Rogan asked. Looks a little bit like a tuna. Might even taste like one. We'll let Kordoff get it and see if it's fit for us to bury our teeth into. I could do with a steak. Maybe two of them. Hello, the fireworks didn't send our duck dogs running. I'd say they're enjoying the show. Rogan was right. The duck dog family sat in a line along the crest of the fast drying sand ridge, appreciably closer to the ship. They held their attention on the men and the now limp fish. But as Dar tentatively splashed another step in the direction of that sandbank, the yellow members of the clan retreated, one of them nudging the smallest one in front of it. The green ones continued to stand their ground, the half-grown one running along the water's edge, hissing. Dar stopped, the flood swishing round his legs. Cully looped a cord around the tail of the dead fish and fastened it to the ramp rail. Perhaps overcome by the sight of so much meat, the smallest duck dog gave a tiny whimpering cry and ran between the legs of its guardian to the water. Resignedly, the larger yellow beast followed the cub, turning over the loose sand with large blunt claws of a forepaw to dig out a squirming red creature, which the baby pounced upon to swallow greedily. But the green boss of the party hissed angrily at the hunter and sent both scuttling back. Then he withdrew also, with his head turned toward the men, facing the danger represented by the Terrans bravely, hissing a stern warning. When the last of the smaller duck dogs had dodged into the break in the cliff, he disappeared there, also leaving only scuffed tracks in the sand to mark their trail, but Dard sighted the tip of a dark bill still protruding from the crack. It's still watching us. Wary, used the pilot which suggests that it has enemies. Enemies that may look like us. But it's also curious. If we ignore it, maybe. He was interrupted by a shout from the ship. Kordoff had come out on the ramp and was waving vigorously to the explorers. As the others slashed back, he pulled on the cord reeling in the fish. What is your verdict? Rogan wanted to know when they joined him bending over their capture. Do we eat it or don't we? Give me a few minutes and some aid in the laboratory, and I shall have an answer to that. But this is close to there in life, so it may be edible. And what were you watching by the cliffs? More dragons, perhaps? Just passing the time of day with another breakfasting party, Rogan told him, and went on to explain about the duck dogs. It was worth waiting for Kordor's verdict, Dard thought later, as he savored the fine white flakes of meat grilled under Kordor's supervision, and portioned out to the hungry and none too patient crew. At least we can chalk old Potbelly up on our bill of fare, observed Rogan. But finding this one may only be a fluke. It's a deep water fish, and we're not going to have storms 
to drive such a shore every day, Kemper pointed out. He explored his lips with his tongue and then studied the empty plastic plate he held wistfully. We can, however, look around for another stranded one. Cully unfolded long legs. We'll take out the sled now. Well, the wind has died down. I'd say it was safe. And the pilot turned a cord off. How about raising Santee and Harmon? We're going to need them. The first scientist agreed. But Carly first, as a doctor, and then we shall bring out the others. You are leaving soon? Well, we'll tell you before we go. And we don't intend to go far. Maybe a turn into that valley up ahead, and then along the shore for a mile or so. We have landed in a wilderness. Indications point to that, but I want to be sure. Until the sun breaking through the clouds overhead indicated that it was noon, they were hard at work. The sled, Dart discovered, was just what its name implied, a flat vehicle possessing two seats, each wide enough for two passengers, with a space between for supplies. He helped to assemble the larger sections while Kimber and Cully sweated and swore over the business of installing the engine. It was a flying craft, Dard realized, but totally unlike a copter or a rocket, and he did not see what would make it airborne without blades or tubes. When he said as much to Rogan, the technician leaned back against a convenient sand dune to combine test and explanation. I cannot tell you how it works, kid. The principle is something really new. They whipped that engine together during the last months we were on the cleft. But it's some sort of anti-gravity device. Takes you up, keeps you there until you shut it off. It broadcasts a beam, which sends you along by pushing against the earth. If they had had time, they might have powered the ship with it. But there was only this one experimental sled built, and we had to depend upon power we knew about. How about it, Sim? Getting her together? The pilot smiled through a streak of grease which turned his brown skin black. Tighten that one bolt, Cully. He pointed out the necessary adjustment. And she's ready to lift, or at least she should be. Let's try her out. He boarded the shallow craft and settled himself behind the controls, buckling a safety belt around his hips before he triggered the motor. The sled zoomed straight up with a speed that sent the spectators sprawling and tore an exclamation from the pilot. Then, under Kimber's expert hand, it leveled off and swung in a wide circle about the starship. Finishing off the test flight with a figure eight, Kimber brought the sled back to a slow, studied landing on the now dry sand at the foot of the ramp. Bravo! That encouraging cheer came from the open hatch. Kordoff beamed down at them, and with him, one hand on the rail, her head lifted so that the sun made a red glory of the braids wreathing it was a woman. Dard stared up at her with no thought of rudeness. This was the Carly who had taken care of Desi. But she was younger than he expected, younger and somehow fragile. There were dark shadows under her eyes, and when she smiled at them, it was with a patient acceptance which hurt. Kimber broke the silence as she joined the party. What do you think, Carly? he asked matter-of-factly, as if they had parted only the hour before and no tragedy lay between. Would you trust yourself to this crazy flyer? With the right pilot of the controls, yes. And then looking at each one, she spoke their names slowly, as if reassuring herself that they were really there. Les Rogan, George Kelly, and... She reached Dard, hesitated, before her smile brightened. You must be Desi's Dard, Dard Nordis. Oh, this is good, so good. 
She looked beyond the men at the cliffs, the sea, the blue-green sky arching over them. Now, before you start off, explorers, Kordoff announced, there is food to be eaten. The food was fish again, together with quarter portions of the concentrate cakes and some capsules Kordoff insisted they take. When they were finished, the first scientist turned to Kimber. Now that you have that sky buggy of yours put together, you will be off, huh? Yeah, there are four, maybe five hours of daylight left. I think that a survey from the air would show us more in that length of time than a trip on foot. You say us. Whom do you intend to take with you? Asked Carly. Rogan. He had experience on Venus and... Dart held his tongue. He couldn't beg to go. Kimber would choose Cully, of course. The pilot didn't want a green hand. He was so sure of that choice that he could hardly believe it when Kimber said, They have the kid. He's lightweight. We don't want to overload if we haul back game or specimens, too. Collie's a crack shot, and I'd feel safer to leave him on guard here. Good enough, Kordoff agreed. Just do not voyage too far, and do not fall off that silly ship of yours to land on your heads. We have no time to waste patching up explorers who do not know enough to keep themselves right side up, huh? Thus Dard found himself sharing the pilot's seat on the sled with Rogan crawling in behind. Kimber insisted that they buckle their safety belts under his supervision, and he tested their fastenings before they took off. The rise of the light craft was not so abrupt as the first time, and Kimber did not try to get much above the level of the clifftops. They skimmed along only a few feet above the rock as they flashed north, the curving shoreline as their guide. From this height, he had a good view to the west, seeing most of the wide valley through which the Red River flowed. The low vegetation they sighted from the ship thickened into clumps of good-sized trees, and among these were flying things which did not appear to be dragons. Along the edge of the sea, the cliff rose in an unbroken perpendicular wall. Apparently the starship had earthed in the only opening in it, for from the elevation of the sled they could sight nothing but that barrier of brilliantly hued stone dividing vegetation and low land from the beating sea. Rogan cried out, and a moment later, Dard too cringed as a ray of light struck painfully into his eyes. It flashed up from sea level as if a mirror had been used to direct the sunlight straight at them. Kimber brought the sled around and ventured out over the water in a sweep designed to bring them to the source of that light. There was a scrap of beach a few feet across, which the weeds, driven up by the storm, lay. Kimber, with infinite caution, maneuvered to set them down there. When the sled jolted to earth, its occupants stared in open amazement at the source of the mirrored ray. Protruding from the face of the cliff, as if from a pocket or hollow, especially fashioned to contain it, was a cone-shaped section of metal, and not metal in a crude, unworked state, but a finely fashioned and refined alloy. Dard split a fingernail on the buckle which fastened his belt in his haste to get to the find but Kimber was already halfway across the sand before he gained his feet. The three, not quite daring to touch, studied the peculiar object. Kimber squatted down to peer under it. There was a thin ring of similar metal encircling the widest part of the cone, as if it rested within a tube. Looks like a bullet in a rifle barrel. Rogan found a comparison, which was none too reassuring. Do you think it's a shell? I don't think so. Kimber pulled gently at the tip. Let's see if we can work it out. From the sled, he brought an assortment of tools. 
Take it easy. Rogan eyed these preparations askance. If it is an explosive and we do the wrong thing, we're going to finish up in pieces. It's not a shell, Kimber repeated stubbornly. And it's been here a long time. Look. He pointed at fresh scars on the cliff face. That's a recent break. Maybe the storm tore it down, uncovered this. Now, a little probing. They worked gingerly at first, and then when nothing happened with more confidence, until they had it out far enough to see that the cone was only the tip of a long cylinder. Finally, they hooked a chain to it and used the power of the sled to draw it completely free of the tube. Six feet long, it lay half in and half out of the water, a sealed opening showing midway in its length. Kimber knelt down before the tube and flashed his hand light inside. As far as they could see, ran a tunnel lined with seamless metal. What in the name of space is that, anyway? Rogan wondered. Some sort of transportation, I would say. Kimber still held the light inside, as if by wishing alone he could deduce the destination of their discovery. Rogan prodded the cylinder with his foot and rolled it slightly. The technician stooped and tugged at the end in the sand. To his astonishment, he was able to lift it several inches above the beach. Well, it is a whole lot lighter than you think. I believe we could take it back to the sled. Kimber took Rogan's place and hoisted. We might at that. I guess there's no harm in trying. The three of them manhandled the cylinder on board the sled and lashed it into place though both ends projected over the size of the craft. Kimber was doubly careful in his takeoff. He brought them up with much room to spare away from the cliffside and circled back toward the valley. Well, this answers one question, doesn't it? Rogan leaned forward. We are not the first intelligent life here. Yeah. The pilot added nothing to that bare ascent. He was intent on reaching the starship. Dart squirmed in his seat. He did not need to turn to see that smooth piece of metal. He could feel its presence, and what its presence meant to all of them. Only intelligence, a high standard of intelligence, could have fashioned it. And where was that intelligent life now? Watching and waiting for the Terrans to make their first fatal move? <laughs>